Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, as always, Maddie Gobo, events manager. Um, Today, I have two poets, not one, but two, here in the Skylight studio. Um, They're going to read alternating sets of poems, so you're going to have like a real journey here with us. Um, And I'm just really excited for you to meet them. But before we do that. Um, I just want to do one more plug for our virtual events happening over on Crowdcast, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, You can find all of our past events there for free to replay to your heart's content. Uh, And you can also join any of our many great upcoming live streams. So we hope you follow us there. All right. Today's conversation features Muriel Leung, and Adam Choi Wild. Muriel Leung is the author of Imagine Us, The Swarm, winner of the 2020 Night Boat Books Poetry Prize, and Bone Confetti, winner of the 2015 Noemi Press Book Award. A Pushcart Prize nominated writer, her writing can be found in The Baffler, Cream City Review, Gulf Coast, The Collagist, and others. She is the recipient of fellowships to Kundaman, Vona Voices Workshop, and the Community of Writers. She is the poetry co-editor of Apogee Journal. She also co-hosts the Bloodjet Writing Hour podcast with Rochelle Cruz and M.T. Valata. She is the member of Marisa Collective, a feminist speakers bureau. Currently, she is a Dorn's Eye Fellow in Creative Writing and Literature at the University of Southern California. She is from Queens, New York. Hello, Muriel. Welcome to the program. Thank you. (laughs) Very excited. All right, and next, we have Adam Choi Wild. Adam Choi Wild is a queer Korean-American poet who grew up in the slam community of Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and went on to perform across the country, including at Brave New Voices, the New York City Poetry Festival, and Asheville Word Fest. Adam is a Kundaman Fellow with an MFA in poetry from Sarah Lawrence College and was a finalist for the Jake Adam York Prize in 2019. Oh my gosh, Jake Adam York. <sighs> wow. That's very exciting. Congratulations. I love Jake out of here. Their work ap- appears in the Daring to Repair anthology, the Queer Movement Anthology of Literatures, Barrow Street, the Massachusetts Review, Split This Rock, Foglifter, Hyphen, Lantern Review, Friction, and other publications. They work as the director of the Progressive Teaching Institute and as a diversity coordinator at a school in New York City. Their new collection is Cut to Bloom, out now from Right Bloody Publishing. Welcome, Autumn. Thanks so much for having me. Um, all right, so yes, thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Skylight for having us. Um, it's a rare conversation that I can have with other queer Asian American people, uh, much less queer Asian American poets whose work I admire so immensely. And I'm just so excited for this opportunity to talk with Muriel and hear poems. Um, so this, the, my new book that just came out called Cut to Bloom um, is in many ways about silence and survival, um, which I know is something that people have really been contending with a lot these days, right? Um, what do we say to speak up? When do we call someone in? How do we do so with integrity and compassion? And um, I think it's really important to name how we are trained to be silent and trained to feel helpless in order for systems of inequity to perpetuate itself. And um, Yeah, these next two poems are about that. 
inheritance. If I speak now, I deny generations of mouths politely closed or pummeled smooth, hiding folds of cash until bruises crowd and we finally say enough. In our family, I'm the first American. What choice is there but to grunt and pry at what has been slammed closed, to love open like sunflowers following the sun, trusting to be fed, not burned? To be the first means to salvage. What choice is there but to peel off the flies cut on my sticky tongue? The Aria Thief. Um, so, the only thing you need to know about this is that uh, my mom is trained as a professional singer. All right, the Aria Thief. Back home, he yanks mama's mouth round into screams, burns her vocal cords, strands her nightingales in the winter of his cold cocktail gins. Makes them croak out a song when he bends her neck, the skin gathered in his fist. Mother silence when he holds a knife to his stomach. Mother silence when the cops leave and the phone rings, blaming her for his rage. If I fail my mouth, the story plays again. Can't close, closet, seize. I must become the skip and the disc, the fracture that makes the needle jump, land on anything but this. Wow. Thank you so much, Autumn. I'm so glad you read that opening poem too. And I love, I love the Aria poem as well. Um, there's so much um, about those two poems that's, and just the entire book in general that talks so much about inheritance. Um, I wanted to share two poems too that those poems speak to of my own. Um, these are from a section in my forthcoming uh, book, Imagine Us a Swarm. Um, there's a final section that's called When I Imagine um, All the Possibilities of the Swarm that all starts with the same refrain, suppose. And it's a reimagining of um, different events of a life, um, moving through trauma and healing. And um, they, they each begin the same way, so I'll just read both of them. Suppose the sky is flush with change and it is possible, the dead and the half alive clamoring over the stuttering movements of speech. The wheels of our perpetual organs keep on spinning in defiance of death's persistent volume. Supposing it is true that when my mouth presses against the light, there is a soft black bloom. God has no dominion over blackness, a nature where every color spools. I have been kissing a velvet moon. The light bounces off the chrysalis of night morning, revealing an amorphous sheen. If my father is not a ghost and my mother is not a ghost, then I too, a maker, a shapeshifter, bless this underlayer of sky and its many faces. The rain is not a light poison. There is no recourse for the things we have done to one another when we were hurting. I suppose myself into a whirl. When she wakes up from the solemn years, she will turn to him and say, hello, the not me. He too will awake to declare, hello, my courage. Suppose I got into the car with my mother and we just drove. The day that she left, the air filled with a prickling sound. In the car's silver interior, we were pulled by streetlights and the debris of night. It became possible to drink one another's pains. Then dawn arrived. We had crossed two state lines, waving to their soft tracks in the air. At a roadstop diner, we ate little and talked about our disappointments. Had it not been for the kindness of apples, then what? My great-grandmother filling the hunger of my mother, my mother before me, my palm opening to receive. The family women, three generations deep, sat watchfully in the corner booth, their mouths a pile of salt. It was not that she regretted the quality of her births, my mother said, 
but what would it be like to be chosen first and only? I begged her to return, I begged. There are animals who study grief for years. Did you know that, mom? I said. It was possible she heard me and chose instead to contemplate the sugar spilled across the counter. Every granular speck, a pattern lost, I wet it with my thumb. How could we not see it? Our mouths brimming with action and consequence. My father's heart turned away from us, dreaming into another future of glass. I share my mother's face, after all. The music repeats. Just one more hour, she said. She took my hand. With the women, her pockets lined with sugar, we left. Oh my God. I didn't know you had another book coming out. I am so excited. I mean, I've always admired your ability to make worlds that are so intimate and rich in your poetry. And I mean, your lines, velvet moon, debris of night, had it not been the kindness of apples? Like, okay. <laughs> um, when is your new book coming out? Um, I believe May 2021 of next year. So we should do this again. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So, wow, there's so many different things I want to say about your poem. Uh, let me try to focus my thoughts here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we were talking about so much is our poems are like, are the ways that language is and isn't a bridge across. Um, and I think for me, as much as I want to believe that it can really help me choose instead of solely um, create the place where, you know, instead of like being stuck in the place that I've inherited, um, I think I've also had to accept that there's only a certain amount that I can truly communicate with my mom because of the language barrier between us, um, which at times feels like its own type of violence. Um, and yeah, this poem, next poem kind of talks about that. It's called Circle Talk. How do I know who I love when you can't say, this is me? What is the point of knowing English if all I can draw are circles when you draw lines? How can I draw lines to a past if it is hidden by a screen of broken moths? If you are a past hidden by broken moths, what will I call my children? What will they call you? A cloud, a piece of wheat? If you are a cloud and I am a piece of wheat, how do moths find their way in the dark? If we ever found a way through the dark to touch each other's mouths with small hands, how will we make up for lost time? If I have your small hands, how do our mouths fail us again? Um, this next poem is called The Forgotten War, and um, it, it has footnotes in it, which um, is never something I've done with before, but I'm going to read the footnotes to you first before I read the poem. One, the Korean War is often referred to as the Forgotten War because of its absence from U.S. public attention. Two, Japan colonized Korea for 35 years before the Korean War, forcing everyone to take on Japanese names and speak only in Japanese. Secretary Taft sanctioned this occupation as long as Japan agreed the U.S. could continue to control the Philippines. Three, hundreds of thousands of women were forced into sexual servitude by the Japanese military until the end of World War II. American military personnel continued to visit the comfort stations until they were closed in 1946. <clears throat> the Forgotten War. One. My grandfather was a soldier in a war where only white men could be heroes and my people, the herd, to be saved. Three million Korean civilians killed, pocketed like coins for democracy, which is to say he was born a pawn, born to forget who pulled the trigger. Two, grandmother never talks about her childhood and hoards everything. 
cabinets of ketchup and spam, reused toilet paper drying on the sink's edge, teaching us to pick up each grain of rice, eyeing the outskirts of her plates, never talking about the Korean pried out like teeth, born to forget the name her mother calls her, foraging instead for words like hunger and please. Three, what is a plea? In the language of men collecting a half million comfort women, many only 12, most dying from multiple STDs. What does a person deserve after years of days like that? Surely more than the dollar, the few hundred out of thousands of comfort women to remain received as reparations. Four. The word Han in Korean means to celebrate your survival in silence, knowing you weren't the only one to pay the price. Means seeing there was less than a grain of rice and still setting the table means that when they steal your shovel, use your hands and plant the garden anyway. Five. It took my aunt years to divorce her abusive husband, choosing a bruised neck over an empty mouth. She now works at a 7-Eleven, borrows money from my mom for her daughter's wedding, tries to still her voice into a frozen lake when she calls, her choice to leave her husband the same as leaving the church, single mothers being outcast in Korea, wishes to say being a woman is the loneliest thing if you're trying to survive. Six, my mother, in trying to survive, made us speak English at home, knowing we wouldn't be able to defend the family in our mother tongue. She says the word Han is my birthright, something every Korean owns. But who am I to define this prize ruin, this fertile ash far from fluent saying thank you like a foreigner, craving to fit into the language of home and memory, split from the homeland we wouldn't have survived, queer and single mothered, split from holding each other's words in our mouths like our own, missing what was never ours. Yet I am this fool coming to praise if not love the fracture knowing it has allowed me to choose, if not forget. And my mother can be more than a survivor. And I can be more than a child who is trained to never ask for more. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I never forget that, like, Autumn, you have this background in performance, too. So just, like, even, even across the, the limitations of, like, a recording, um, just, like, your performance, like, of that poem itself carries through. And just the, the way that, I don't know, just the, the historical context of the poem is, like, really, really... Um, Thank you for sharing that as well. But even so, the, the poem itself um, explores these many fractals of a fam familial history that's intertwined with militaristic violence, um, violence towards like Korean women in particular, um, and then like, you know, its current impact on this generation, your life, um, you know, and, and just to be able to, to capture all of that. And I, I love that, in your book, you make you take such special care to define this term Han, um, which is a Korean term that you know talks about the uniting of shared experience through um, hardship, um, but in this way that I think also honors the dignity um, of those who have that shared experience too. So, so that that term, the the term you use, which is become more than a survivor. I think is just so important. Um, and I think that there's there's only so much in English that you can offer to translate that meaning, but this is like the closest thing. And this poem is kind of that offering, right? Um, and so I love that. And um, those poems in particular that you read aloud remind me of um, um, some of these poems that I've written also in Imagine us a swarm that have uh, that try to grapple with this notion of survivorship, 
um, in a section that's um, entitled Dear Intimacy of Theory. This is Theory of a Girl Asleep in a Forest. Oh, I'm sorry. Theory of a Girl Asleep in a Hole, the Forest Left. There were puffed up flowers and bees and webs spun out of sugar spit. All that gushed up swarm, its rainy innards departed too. In its absence, a hole where a single body fit. The body that filled it was cycling through the third stage of dreaming in which night fell over the vast part of her mind where another forest lived, its flowers dead and unhoneyed. The bees gave no more sugar to spiders. Instead, the webs, instead the webs were knotted with a god's cruel design, bidding no one leave. The dream shuddering itself, and a girl in her sleep could not wake, and therefore had no testimony to give. Dear intimacy of theory, at which I make grooves in my skirt, imagining all possibilities for wandering. These are the most precious parts of my days, when the forest can decamp without me, the place fleeing the person. I want to write these possibilities the way trees can rush forth into its most unknowable entanglements, root defying root in its bind. In a sense, this is a love letter in which I, now forestless, am seeking you in the swarm. When I say intimacy, I do not mean that every experience within me is forageable. I mean that a certain care can hold water still enough, and it is teeming with life. In Bell Hook's terms, theory as location for healing, theory as intervention, makes the living something worthy of amassing. That is all I want. Your gratuitous sorrows falling out a bell sleeve, asking, how do I repair, even as your sorrows parrot other sorrows? Wow. Man, I could sit here listening to you read poems all night. <laughs> um, man, I, you know, I think one of the reasons I'm so amazed to have a friendship with you, Muriel, is that, you know, growing up, I didn't really meet any queer Asian American folks. Um, I think I was 27, you know, which was about seven years ago, the first time I met an, a fellow queer Asian American person to just hear your poems about desire, you know, is so healing. Um, I think to have that out in the world and to have those poems for my poems to be in conversation with. Um, and I think because of, you know, the language barrier, kind of going back to that topic, I think that coming out to my mom as both queer and non-binary has been perhaps a longer, more extensive process than it would have been if we shared a linguistic home. Um, so, I know we're gonna be talking about this poem a little bit later on, but I did want to read it for y'all. It's after a poem by the incredible Jean Ann Burley. If, uh, if you haven't read her, you must. Um, she's an incredible poet. And this poem is called Unsolicited Advice for the Queer Asian Girls Who's Trying to Make It. When your mother forces you out of the car, let her. When she tries to apologize years later for doing so, let her. When you're old enough to understand how mistakes can be well-intentioned, answer the phone. When she calls your girlfriend your roommate, plan on inviting her back for the next holiday. When she asks if the man you went to lunch with your boyfriend, simply say no. When you want to let your anger swallow anybody's close or small enough, remember that change takes a long time. When she ignores your fiance when making introductions, remember how at least she asks about her when she calls. When at your wedding, she sees you're both loved and belong, don't remind her of everything that's come before. When she finally tells your wife she loves her, let yourself cry. All the longing built from 10 years of waiting. Let her see your tears and try to forgive her and yourself for letting it take this long. Um, I, I wanted to make a comment about how, you know, easy it is to bet 
embed into our hearts and minds the homophobia of the world around us um, and the violence that we experience. I, I think that <clears throat> letting ourselves be who we are is a political act, um, something we'll also be talking about later. And not to try to unwind the inheritance of trauma is a stance we're taking, right? To say we deserve more, um, a stance of hope that can help others unwind trauma from their bodies as well, um, so that we may all move towards the love that we deserve. Um, this poem is called Fall for Her. Fuck it. Fill your hands with her though you tremble. The daisy outside your door stuck between bending beneath the wind and rising from the ground. Fickle inheritance. You learn the romance of being unseen. The moment you should move from chair to under table, just when your father turns away, just before he picks up the hammer and wonders where to throw. When she looks at you, holds out a hand, does she realize what she is asking? Does she see how deeply your memories of him wrap around your spine with their greedy long limbs, claiming tailbone, your tongue, your skin too sweaty to grasp? She's a bullet not meant to hurt you. A bullet wanting to shine its face with your blood in order to know the way you move. Intimacy is its own kind of death learning to say yes to this ash, to say enter as easily as you say hide, how to still while the bullet comes. Fall or stay perched inside the small cage of your teeth. Fall or agree to a life of being half, never more than a hand that knows to tighten in a fist or unleash a sting and you have lost your chance to forget that you're the child of a violent man. Oh, I, one of the things I loved, I love so much about Katibloom is just that the way that there is so much room, I mean, it, it, it's a book that explores this really painful history, painful familial history, but it also has these like really beautiful poems. Um, I mean, I would call them love poems. I don't know if you would call them that. I mean, they're about, um, you know, your partner and, um, and how these issues like with familial violence don't just stop, you know, with, with the family. It's like when you go out and you build new families, um, issues arise as well and you have to contend with them, right, in order to build healthy relationships. Um, and I know that we'll also be talking about that more in a little bit too, but I just thought that there's just such a beautiful um, way in which you you insist on the complication of that um and and i think it's such a reminder too that um all of this takes such delicate and fierce work um especially as you know queer asian american people like what you were saying earlier just um i mean i i, I was very fortunate that i grew up in new york and i i you know came into my queerness very early but i i do find that even now like i'll meet someone um another queer asian american person in their early 20s and it's just a different time now where where information about queer culture is just a little bit more accessible and the language is different and i'm so happy about it but it also reminds me there's so much i don't know either <laughs> and that's actually really exciting um i love what um, the younger queer um, folks, especially queer Asian American folks, are teaching me. Um, and so this, this, you know, as I'm sure Katie Bloom for me feels like such a love letter to other queer Asian American folks, um, especially from the two poems that you read aloud. Um, uh, Imagine us to swarm too is very much that. Um, so I will close our reading to poems um, also from the last section of the book. Suppose everybody I ever loved made up a tiny universe in which each one thrived in their own planetary hues. I mistook each one for the central star, common mistake, and still I draped each of them in a garment of changing seasons. How many moons, I asked. They answered and I supplied. The universe moved in strident form, each planet missing the other in orbit. 
I did not intend to collapse the blue planet still unfurling in its newness, but the layers of its life saw no future for water. I abandoned a dry well. I floundered. Years ago, the universe held a pale sun. It struck a match through every star-kissed body and in its stillness was painful as glass. I thought falling in love meant white hot, but that was only a fraction of the universe, of time. I felt the shadow first when I pleaded, eclipse me. It was the chaos of spurs and it burned. It came and went and in returning begged the spun miracle of rings. There would be no end to this carrying. For them, I knew I would always wait. Turning my body over, I saw the universe was halved, its noisy assemblage sliding towards collision. I held the planets close. I pressed their, I pressed their gaseous swarms to ruckus mass. I did this so they would believe me. Having endured the labor of the current, the universe was fast expanding. It needed to fold. Even I could not bear it. I surrendered and I loved them all. Suppose there is an end to our suffering. Like a chariot, the absence of grief circles us with the obstinate heat of the largest star. To believe in the radiant orbit of this fire, to face an empty cup and find the consolated mire of you and me in the toppling of a century. We rise from the painful corridors of a life. Rarely did we dream of planetary rings, and yet, tilting ourselves up, we see the heavenly bodies of all that has passed, each one bright with surrender. We can go on. We can dress ourselves in the celestial cloak of this wide expanse, every woman and femme in the disorder of the peel. I will never write another elegy again. I am looking at you now in the acceleration of time. All the possibilities of the swarm ignite, the humming of many wings amassing into a greater noise. We can write our origins sacred here and renounce the country of our fear. There is only our singular pulse when we fill the sky. So Autumn, thank you so much for starting us off with this reading and for um, initiating this conversation, essentially. I, I love that, um, like I love what's possible in the conversation between two queer Asian American writers, poets especially, and, and every, every conversation is different. Even if I've known someone for many years, I always find that um, once we get really get down to it, like there, there's just so, so much that um, there's just so much that like I, I still have to learn, um, especially from your book, which um, is your first book um, that has come out. And it's just such an exciting debut for me because it, it and in so, in so many ways is such a, like, is such a foundational work for thinking about um, specifically queer Korean American experiences. Um, and to talk about, you know, the, the opening poem that you read um, was talking about, you know, was, it was sort of just thinking about what does it mean to um, choose silence and what those consequences are. And for me, that speaks so much, um, makes me think so much of, you know, Audre Lorde's work um, and the ways in which she, um, you know, in poems like A Litany for Survival, um, considers the consequences of what does it mean to not speak. Um, and it, it's always a choice, right? But, um, but I think that there are also um, dire consequences mentally, physically, emotionally um, for that. And I think the book does such an amazing job of, of really exploring the world of what, is, what does it mean to be silent and what, what, what possibilities as a foreclose and what what might be possible, right? If we actually ch challenge the narratives that we grew up believing. Um, so I, I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful for that. To have one of your role models say that about your book is probably <laughs> one of the best things to hear. So thank you for that generous <laughs> summary about the book. 
It's so funny. We've known each other for years. So <laughs> it's like we, I feel like we, we, you know, sort of met around, I think we sort of met like maybe like in my early 20s, I think, um, where we we're both kind of just, you were in your graduate program mm-hmm. for writing, I believe. And so we we're both sort of just starting, starting our writing careers. Not that there's like ever an official start, but I think that we're both fairly new to it. So um, I don't know. I I I would do, will say that you know it's it's an interesting time for your book to come out. Um, I know one of the things that's happening in our world right now is like we're in the midst of you know we're in the midst of global protests essentially for Black Lives um, following the you know following the murders of George Floyd, you know Pop, um, the um, continued lack of response or justice to Breonna Taylor. Um, I, I'm sure that as you're, tour- as you're touring with this book, even virtually too, that these conversations have come up. Um, what does it mean for you as a Asian American writer, um, an Asian American person to, um, what do you think the role is for Asian Americans in responding to political protests right now? Yeah. Um... I, you know, I, I appreciate this question because I've been thinking about this a lot recently, I think, as a lot of us have been, and, you know, about what does it mean to be a non-Black person of color with the privileges I have, um, including all the different steps up that I've been giving, right? So the degrees or the job I'm in, and the assumptions that people make about me. And I've, what I've come to recently is that I think my role is to engage with white folks and other non-black people of color about these privileges and what that means for us, um, especially since white supremacy uses the success, uh, the success that they allowed Asian Americans um, to have to uphold the myth of meritocracy, right? That everyone, if they worked hard enough, would be able to reach the American dream. Um, but it is a myth because <laughs> we know that for some, no matter how hard they pull on their bootstraps, there's so many gates that systemic racism puts in front of them that makes it hard or impossible to even pull these boots on. Um, and as Asian Americans, as people who have benefited actually from white supremacy, it is critical for us to recognize the ways that we have been used to prove this myth of meritocracy um, as a way to erase a racism that's built into every part of our lives. And, you know, we were allowed to succeed if we made ourselves as white as possible, if we distanced ourselves from Black folks, if we perpetuated anti-Black ideas. And now I want to ask ourselves how we might use some of the privilege we've gotten to, you know, hold people accountable, um, accountable to what they say they're about, what they're, what they say they're doing to fight racism. And I think my role is to educate. um, And it is also my role to dismantle the anti-Blackness that I've inherited. Right? Um, there's a lot of it in the Asian American community. And if I hide it in shame for fear of not seeming like woke enough, um, I will never be honest with myself about the stereotypes I consumed as a child. And until I confront the anti-Blackness in myself and in my community, we have no place to go except round in circles where we congratulate ourselves for a small isolated acts of donation or when we post something. But without that recognition that we're all raised in the super white supremacy, we can't engage in the hard and lifetime work of anti-racism. And, you know, I think my role as Asian American is to take on some of the emotional labor of education, of calling in and using the privilege I've received to, you know, reach as many years, ears as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, um, you know, what we saw in the beginning, um, what was sort of towards the beginning of the uprising is that there were like so many actions that have been fostered by this like um like a, like a sincere efforts but also like this compulsoriness to like respond and to share and to donate which i think is very fruitful but I, but you're right in that like these conversations need to go beyond that um have a sort of more deep deepened structure to them and i and one way that i've been thinking about it too is just like well like anti-blackness has deep reverberations through Asian American life as well. It doesn't just harm black people, it also harms Asian American. Um, these 
beliefs about meritocracy as you shared is deeply injurious. I think believing in this myth that you might um, socially ascend in certain ways, um, um, gain some proximity to whiteness um, and whatever the privileges that like promises you is a very false lie. And I think we see that too, um, you know, I think East Asians have a different history in the US, but I, we, you know, we see that there are so, there's such a diverse, um, there's so many diverse communities even within Asian Americans, uh, refugee experiences, undocumented experiences, um, folks who are not East Asian and do not have, um, you know, who are, uh, you know, first generation um, immigrants. These are um, experiences that don't get factored into when we talk about um, vulnerability um, or marginalization. Um, and there's sort of, sort of this flattening too that happens with Asian American experiences. And in many ways as a racial category is um, vastly like ever evolving because like our world is also changing too. And the challenges of um, like global economic structures make it so that like even just the way that we think about race is like, it's just not, this, this category is not tenable. And if we don't do this kind of reflection um, this kind of self-reflection in order to um, think about what does it really mean to be an Asian American person, like working to combat anti-Blackness, um, especially as a non-Black Asian person. Um, if we don't do that work, then we lose sight of that, of not just um, the ways in which we can be using harm to others, um, but also how we are harming ourselves as well. And so, I think, you know, your Petter Bloom, you know, introduces this concept of Han, you know, and I think that that's such like a, like, like, that's such a, a useful way for thinking about just like our obligation to each other or social responsibility too, in many ways. It's not just, it doesn't feel like a very, like, inactive or passive term. Con to me is, has always seemed to be about um, recognizing connection um, and and feeling like soul bound to do something as opposed to um, doing something because it feels compulsory because you're expect expected to in a sort of socially normative way. Um, that was actually one of my uh, one of the things that I like was just so fascinated about with Cut to Bloom is that you have this structure. Um, that starts, the structure of the book starts with Han, and then it moves into um, a section called Rogue Bouquet. And in my mind, I have this image of a movement from something that is like bound to something that is just like dispersed um, and it's just like feverish and this feverish array um, of blossoming. And uh, there's something, there's something too about like the lessons learned of the book that that show that as well. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that movement from Han to Rogue Bouquet and what, what inspired you to organize your book that way? Um, I love what you said about a feverish um, and talking about Rogue Bouquet in that way. Um, one, the, the quote that opens up that second section um, is by a Muslim queer person named Samra Habib, um, who wrote this incredible memoir. And she says, dedicating your life to understanding yourself can be its own form of protest. Um, which, you know, I think to me harkens back to our conversation about anti-Blackness as well. Like in order to, to protest white supremacy, we have to recognize and understand the anti-Blackness that we, we have been raised with and that is in a Korean community. Um, but to go back to the concept of Han, um, it is a very contested word in, Korean, in the Korean language. Um, you know, some people say that it represents the core of the Korean people to persevere despite consistent hardship, to admit that life is an arc of suffering. Um, but some say too that it was an idea planted by Japanese colonizers who wanted Korean people to accept their fate of oppression. And this contested word that is entwined with survival felt really fitting for the first half of the book, um, which is about both the violence of physical abuse and the violence of being separated by language. And 
the rogue bouquet section is about taking what I've been given and try to turn it into something I can bear to live with, right? In the hopes that it might become something beautiful enough to even dream of making a gift of, um, despite rogue meaning queer, despite it meaning neither Korean or American enough, right? I don't know if you ever experienced that. Um, or the loneliness that can come from belonging to an in-between space. And I really um, hope to convey the journey from inheritance to choice, to the willful mm. act of transformation. Um, you know, and it's, yeah, it, it's so, like, what do we do to raise up the voices that can speak at each of these intersections, right? And mm. you know, which, which makes me want to, like, turn this question back on you, Muriel, of, you know, how do cultural understandings play out in your book? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I love what you were saying about just like how, it's almost like such a fine line, like how do you write about suffering this way? That's so real, like this, these are things that happen, right? And then you as a grown person have come in and you have this like more mature analysis and then when you publish something, you also recognize too that it has all these different manifestations and interpretations in the world that are beyond your control. And so how do you write suffering in this way that does justice to your experiences and the experiences of people who are involved um, in the narratives, um, giving, giving everyone their due, um, making space for it a different way, different memories involved. I think that's something that I think about a lot in my writing. You know, with Bone Confetti, which is my first book, I, I think I wrote it as a fairly young author. I, I think it was a very different project than I imagined us to swarm now. At Bone Confetti, I think I kind of tried to bypass these, these questions about, um, that I think Asian American authors are often like compelled to tell, which are, you know, like, to speak about culture in this way that's like very much about translation. And I bypassed that by just creating a completely different world um, and moving deep into the speculative realm, which is like, this is like a post-apocalyptic world, which in my mind is both real and, and not real. Like it's modeled after places and experiences that I know, but the language is so highly figurative that like, I, I don't want you to place me there. I don't want you to read my biography somewhere and project what you think would be my mother, my father, and my, you know, and like, this is what like it means to be Chinese American because I use this one metaphorical object. Um, I, I think I was so fearful of that kind of misreading that I, I just bypassed it entirely. And, you know, I'm, I, and I think that that, at that time of that writing, I, I, um, you know, I, I wanted to do that to protect myself. And I still stand by that because I, you know, I wrote that during an MFA program where um, maybe it didn't feel as safe to explore things that felt more realist or autobiographical um, and that was more vulnerable. Um, although I do, you know, it's just like Blink and Freddy is a very vulnerable book. It just does it through different means. And then Imagine Us a Swarm is this um, attempt to then like take up that space that I didn't have, which is, you know, it's a collection of like, you know, essays and verse, which is what I call them. And they're just like sort of long, longer form writing where I just for many pages allow this, allow several questions to evolve. And in this way, it's, it's something that as an Asian American person, especially an Asian American woman, um, I think taking up space is just something that, you know, we don't get to do. So I, I, think, I think just even the form of the book has been a way to sort of do something different than bone confetti. And for me, it is something that's like deeply racialized and gendered too. And, and um, yeah, and I think that that's, that's been really vital to the project. And I, I, it's still so new to me, though. I feel like it's, it's, it's so, it's so strange to talk about it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited to, um, for when it comes out to be able to have a different sort of conversation with, um, just based on how people will read it, you know, mm -hmm. at that point. Um, yeah, what has the response been to your book? Have, have other, have other um, queer Asian Americans gone up to you and shared their thoughts about your book? 
Um, a couple. I mean, um, yeah, so I did this virtual reading uh, series and a book tour called Little Lights. Um, and I actually connected to another queer, non-binary, Asian-American person who lives in Brooklyn who has my same name. <laughs> what? <laughs> Such a trip, That's right? Awesome. As someone who like didn't first um, fellow Korean Asian American person until I was twenty seven, and it was like, oh my gosh, like this is such a small world. And mm-hmm. books are definitely community projects, and um, the I've been so grateful for the ways I've been able to connect with people despite us being on Zoom and online. And I mean, we're we're on Zoom right now, um, but um, I think it's also amazing because you know I don't have to be in LA to, to <laughs> record this podcast with you all. And, and I've been able to have some amazing conversations and readings with people um, despite the distance, which, you know, I think just goes to show the power of writing and poetry and community and power of vulnerability and, and the ways that we are fearless in our attempts to connect. Um, and there's, there's so much power in that, I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, and I will say that readings are just such, have always been such a powerful way, especially for when you're promoting your book to establish like kinship with other writers and other poetry books that have a connection to your work um, that maybe someone else may not automatically place together. But I think that what you've been doing has um, been just so like lovely and generous and community oriented in which you're, you're you're creating space for all these different connections. And I, I am sure also with this virtual reading format too, that you're you're inviting um, some just like different attention from other like queer Asian American young writers who, you know, see themselves in your work. And um, I don't know, I just think it's just very special, right? Like I think, I think with everything happening in the world right now, I, I'm, I'm always like very glad that the, this format allows that to happen in a different way. Like you don't have to be in LA to do this. Although I think it would have been really cool to be able to be at Skylight Bookstore <laughs> um, and be able to read there and um, just to see your books on the shelves as well. That would be really special. And, and I think too, I, I, you know, I, I love that um, you're able to connect with other non-binary folks too. I, I, I think um, like, I think like experiences like connecting with other non-binary Asian American folks must feel like so special, especially because I think your book does contend with race and gender in this way that is still like so, so careful and still honoring of um, those limitations in language. (laughs) (laughs) My little sister was FaceTiming me. Does she want to join in in the call? Yeah, right. She has questions too. <laughs> I mean, speaking of which, I mean, you know, she appears in the book too, so. Um, <laughs> baby. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, just like the, the you were saying earlier about the limitations of language to talk about um, gender and, you know, and I think as, as a sort of, how I read it in your book, is that your response is to like still honor terms like girlhood and daughterhood, um, which as like a younger version of you, it's like these were the terms that were available. And as a non-binary person, I'm sure that like these terms are not just like these assumed terms that you would like use now, but these are the these are the available terms that maybe your mother would understand, right? So what does it what does it feel like to share these poems and like what like what would you want to do you feel like you have there's like other um, words you would want to offer to like you know when you think about these poems and when you share about these poems and like what would you what would you want to say alongside them I guess is my question yeah. Um... I love this question because, you know, gender is an ever-evolving and complex thing, right? And while I identify as non-binary, I was raised and socialized as a woman. And with it, all the expectations that I put other people's comfort first, um, there's also this expectation for Korean women to suffer in silence, to hide what pains you, as if 
you know, female bodies were receptacles for whatever you needed to be, whether that's pregnancy or sorrow or nutrition. And we were taught to swallow emotions, to not burden our parents to do what's right. But, you know, if your sense of what is right is troubled by the ideas of another culture, it's hard to not feel like it's unfair to have to hold your tongue. And I think in many ways, my Americanness has nurtured this belief that I have a right to speak up, that I must speak up. And as, as much as it can be hard to navigate the hyphen between the, my Korean American identity, I'm really grateful for this gift of agency that my American identity has given me. Um, but, you know, gender, or should I say biological sex, plays a huge role in how you're treated in Korean culture and also how you're spoken to. And pronouns and gender words are inescapable. Um, when I wrote this book, I hadn't yet found the freedom or courage to identify as non-binary. So I find myself editing the book now, even when I read it, right? I'm going back and like crossing out words, daughter and woman and replacing them oh. with gender neutral ones. And um, you know, in a way, this book will always be a time capsule for me. And also it was the impotence to share my gender identity um, publicly, knowing that the bio in my book, the pronouns people use in reviews, um, would play such a critical part in my coming out journey. And the book ended up being a way to leap forward in many ways and claim who I am, um, perhaps even before I was ready. And I, I really think that without the public pressure to claim myself, it might have been years before I was brave enough to come out as non-binary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I and I love the act of going back and editing my book <laughs> and replacing um, the gendered ones with non-gendered ones because, you know, I think it really speaks to the ways that it's a journey to figure out who we are and that we need permission and role models and language um, often as supports to identify who we truly are and to feel brave enough to who we truly are and you know I'm 34 and I um, really have come out everywhere including work in my family as non-binary this year and I know for many people that it's a much longer journey to actually claim who they are um, so I'm continually grateful for community for poems for people who help um, proliferate the expansive amount of words we have or are building upon to identify ourselves. Um, you know, because it can feel like such a void to, to know that you're different, but to not know how. And we know that representation really matters. Um, so while this book is incredibly gendered, and I think for me, it's really important to talk about the ways that people socialize as women inherit trauma and what they're expected to do with that trauma is important. Um, I will also recognize it always as, you know, a time capsule of a time in my life. Like I did identify this way and um, I wonder if my next book would be about, you know, what it's like to, to identify now as non-binary um, and also like pushing language in ways to hold who I am. Um, I think was also a, a journey that's in front of me. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad to be in community with people to grapple with those questions and to share thoughts on those questions and just to, you know, feel like those questions are valid. Uh, totally. I, I love this thinking about the book, um, thinking about the book as like an artifact um, of a certain time and your ability to like continue to revise the book as you're sharing it and promoting it too, which is I love just generally when um, authors go rogue and they and they completely change their book even after they publish. And that was just like, yeah, I mean, um, even just the publishing things are changing so much now to um, the ability for us to remind everyone that yeah, literature is alive and the people who write this are like they're also still evolving too with their books. Um, yeah, I just think that ability to like keep revising and then also using this book as a way to spark conversation about gender and race and entanglements of that um, are just so vital. And um, I'm sure too, there's just like, even being able to just talk about it openly is a way to also inspire like other like 
queer, Korean, like non-binary folks to also just be like, oh yeah, here's actually like another term that we can use. Here's other gender terms. Here's how, here's how, here's my workaround around it. Um, here's my strategy. Um, I, I think that there's, there's something that in speaking alongside your poems, um, you, you offer that for, for your readers. So I think that's just very special. And yeah, I, I appreciate you, you know, um, coming up with this question too, because I, I think that the way that you've framed it back to me, which was, um, you've asked me like, how do I experience gender pronouns in my writing, which I think is just as important as, as someone who is just a cisgender woman to answer because I don't think that gender is only a question that is for people who are um, non-cisgender. Um, and for me, I think that question is just so generous because it like allows possibility for the ways even my identity of gender could evolve in, in coming years. Just as like when you wrote the book, you were always non-binary when you, even as you're writing the book, but in terms of your coming to yourself with that identity it didn't come until after it was published. And for me, I also permit myself that permission because I would want to grant other people that permission to do the same, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I love um, just the way that you, you complicate these terms like daughter, which is something that I still have some attachment to, but it's also complicated. I don't think you really, um, you know, as a Chinese American person, that is um, means something very specific to me and my family, where it's like um, the race and gender dynamics of it means that like if I go into someone's home, a lot of times I like want to wash your dishes. And I remember getting into I remember getting into a fight with a former um, partner who is another queer person of color who's just like, don't do that. You're like reinforcing the patriarchy but I'm like okay yeah but you don't understand this is like like it just like something feels right I do this and it's just like it's it's at once something that I have grown to do it's what feels comfortable it feels right um and it means something to me and I and I do it because it's meaningful to me um and it's not it's not so much about someone else per se and that's what I think of when I think about like daughterhood, which is like, it has this resonance to me. And maybe when it comes to talking about race and gender, especially like queerness and, um, and just thinking about gender more broadly, I think we should just think about these terms as uh, for, for their racial and gender significance um, and to allow room for it to look different than our Western understandings of what they mean. You know, and, and I think that way we make room for folks who are like non-binary um, to to basically have a different relationship with those terms where it can still be part of your life, but it doesn't have that same um, loadedness and shame attached to it. it, can, it it's all the things, you know. Right, and how do we create language for ourselves that allows for the openness of how we might constantly evolve? Um, I know that for me that coming out for non-binary really required um, a lot of experiences where people affirmed the gender spectrum and where people affirmed the practice of asking for pronouns. And, you know, I, I don't think that I could have found the courage to even name myself or claim that identity for myself without the language other people were using and practicing around me. Um, so, I mean, I think the one of the major hopes of my book is that there's been so many books that I've picked up and read at very specific times in my life. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a book I needed to read, um, you know, and I felt very much that way about Mary Jean Chan's um, Flesh, who, um, who is an Asian American queer writer as well. And um, I just hope that, you know, we can keep producing literature and words and poems that help other people find the words for themselves, right? To kind of feel that openness um, and that openness for change and evolution. And that we are constantly um, exposed to the, you know, the possibility of choosing whatever words feel best, right? And I really think that's the freedom that 
I'm fighting for that I know that many of my friends and colleagues are fighting for is that for people to define themselves as however they want. Um, and it's incredible to think how my community has really helped me to find that courage um, and how books have helped me to find that courage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I totally agree too. And um, I don't know, I think that your work is just like, it joins that legacy, right? Of writers who will do that work. And I'm, I don't know, I'm excited for like, I'm just excited for how it will be received in these like coming years too and the and what we'll add to these conversations. Um, yeah, I hope it can be a part of the conversation uh, for sure. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in because I think this is a great place to stop. Um, what like talking talking about the conversation to come? The conversation you just had was great and and covered so much ground and so much beautiful poetry. Thank you both for sharing your work and and taking the time today to to talk to our listeners. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, any last uh, any last words before we say our goodbyes? Support your local bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Muriel. Thank you, Adam. Um, we'll see everybody back in a few days for the next episode of Skylit. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.